Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to church. I want to tell you about Western Australia, because we are really on the other side of Australia. We don't hear much about WA. But in WA, about 400 kilometers north of Perth, there is a wheat farm, and it's called Hutt River Farm. Now, here's the thing. In 1970, the man who owns the farm renamed it. He stopped paying taxes, and he declared his property independent from Australia. This is a true story. Did you know that? There is an independent, sovereign state within Australia. In his view, Hutt River is now an independent country. And so the farmer gave himself the name Prince Leonard, ruler of Hutt River. True story. So what did he do? Well, he started issuing his own currency, his own coins, his own banknotes, own passports, made his own laws. There's even his own mail system, right? That uh, H, uh, uh, is it? HRP mail, Hutt River Province mail, with his own passport, uh, currency, as well as own stamps. Now, this is still the case today. Only last year, though, uh, Prince Leonard decided to abdicate, and now his son, Prince Graham, great name for a king, Prince Graham, uh, has taken the throne. Now, why is it that most of us in Australia don't know about this? Well, because our government, for good reason, doesn't recognize that this actually is an independent state. No world government recognizes it. And the Hutt River province owes millions of dollars in taxes, obviously. Now, we haven't heard about it because, quite frankly, and the Australian government hasn't sent in armies and tanks right, to conquer it. Because it's really a bit of a joke, right? I mean, he takes it seriously. His family takes it seriously, but no one else really does. If you're ever in the region, you get lots of tourists going to his property and taking selfies because it's a bit of a novelty. His declaration of independence from Australia, you know, quite frankly, is a bit of a puny attempt, a hopeless attempt at self-rule. And so our government, rightly, doesn't really even pay attention to it. We haven't chased down his taxes. We just couldn't be bothered. Now, the book we're looking at today, well, the song, uh, Psalm 2, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 songs, ancient songs. The one that we're going to focus on today is actually number two, the second one that was read out. It's actually a declaration of independence. Did you notice that? A declaration of independence. Or who's it by? Well, it says there that the people on earth and their kings or their rulers are declaring independence against God and His appointed ruler. Now, As we go through Psalm 2, we're going to see how this declaration of independence plays out, right? Is it a serious one? Is God panicked? What's He going to do about it? But what we're also going to do today, because it's really the first of a series of sermons we're going to take looking at the Psalms and different Psalms, we're going to use Psalm 2 as a bit of a window into the whole collection of 150 Psalms. I'm doing something I've never done before. Usually we just preach on one psalm and leave it at that. But today I'd like to give you an introduction into the whole collection of 150 psalms because through that I want you to see how this ancient playlist is going to speak to our modern hearts. So why don't we pray and why don't we get into it? Let's pray. Father God, I want so much for people to love your word, particularly your word in the psalms. It already speaks so powerfully to so many of us in so many experiences through happiness and sadness Uh, through suffering as well as joy. We pray that you may, I pray that you may help me speak, help us listen in such a way 
that our appreciation of the Psalms might grow, that our love for your word might grow, and most importantly, that we might see how Jesus is where all the Psalms point to, and we might find refuge in him. Amen. I've got a few points for you on your outlines, on the bulletins you got when you came in. Um, Let's go through Psalm 2 firstly. So Psalm 2 introduces us to two locations and four characters, right? I wonder if you can pick it. Two locations, four characters. Two locations are earth and heaven. See, that's what it opens with. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Right, you've got the people on earth, and we'll see in a moment, where is the Lord? He is in heaven. And then we get three characters introduced. Remember, there's two locations, four characters, but three are introduced here. First character is a collective character. The nations, the peoples of the earth, their kings, rulers. That's one character. All right, the peoples of earth and their rulers. Of course, the second character is the Lord or God. He is the creator and ruler, and he's in heaven, the second location. But the third character there is also God's anointed. Now, the word there in the Hebrew Bibles, the Old Testament was in Hebrew, translated into English. The word there is Messiah. All right, Messiah. He is a special king that the Lord appoints as his appointed ruler on earth. Three characters, nations and people, the Lord in heaven, and the Messiah. Now, what are the nations doing? Well, they're doing what essentially Prince Leonard did in 1970, yeah? They are declaring, the word is autonomy. Autonomy means literally self-rule. They're declaring independence. So Prince Leonard, even though he lives in Australia, he enjoys the stability and peace and wealth and the land that the federal government and the state government provides him. Nevertheless, he decided, no, I'm declaring independence. And the nations and the people on earth, well, they lived in the world created by God, breathing the air that God provides, drinking the water, eating the food that comes from His hand, but they want to declare independence from Him. And so what's the Lord's response from heaven? at this independence declaration on earth. What, what, is he panicked? Is he marshalling heavenly armies? Is he getting a little bit nervous? Well, what we actually read in a moment is it's a little bit like, I don't know if you know this story, back in Genesis chapter 11, the people build this huge tower known as the Tower of Babel, right? And they're so impressed with their tower. It's supposed to reach into the heavens. Only we read in Genesis 11 after they built this tower, or as they're building the tower, that the Lord says, let us go down to see this tower that they have built. Right? In Genesis 11, as the tower is supposed to go into the heavens, God says, no, I can't really see it, so I better go down just to have a little look because this tower that's meant to be so high is actually so puny. And that's really the, the, the perspective of God in verse 4. Look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven, there's our second location. Is he panicked? Is he nervous? He laughs. He scoffs at them. It's like the Australian government. It's like, who is Hutt River? Like, who cares? We're not going to spend resources dealing with Prince Leonard. It's just not worth it. That's what God is. And then verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king. 
on Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. My holy mountain. See, God laughs at them. Their rebellion is a joke. And so in the face of their declaration of independence, he has a counter-declaration. Well, this is what you say, but let me tell you what I say. He says, you know what? I've appointed my special ruler, my king, as a counter-king to the kings that you've got. I'm going to appoint him on earth, and look what I've given him power to do. Right? So that's the third character. Remember, the king, the Messiah. And now he's speaking in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is God's counter-declaration. He, that's God, said to me, You are my son. Today, I have become your father. Right? The king says, I am the son of God. Now, that language is familiar, obviously, because if you are a Christian, then you know that Jesus is called the son of God, but we'll get there in a moment. Even in the Old Testament Bibles, way before Jesus, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, about God's promises to a king called David, the greatest king of Israel. And in fact, it was really good that we read 1 Samuel 15 this morning, the first reading, because after you read earlier, we heard read, when God rejects Saul, the first king, what's he going to do? He's going to appoint David, his chosen king. And look what God says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the language here. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He's talking about the temple there. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And look at verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. Psalm 2 is drawing on that language, isn't he? I will be his father, he will be my son. So the king of Psalm 2 that God sets up is not just any random king. He isn't given a name in Psalm 2, but we know that he's talking about David and David's descendants after him. So let's read on back to Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, You'll break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, I want you to notice those two locations, right? We've got the movement in this psalm. Firstly, from earth to heaven. Earth declares independence. Then heaven back to earth, right? So the kings of the earth plot against heaven. Then God from heaven laughs at them and appoints his king on earth. And then he gives this king the whole earth as his inheritance. The battle, though, is over before it's even begun. This psalm isn't about a battle. There's no war. It's almost as if it's already been won. They declare independence, God counter-declares, and then it's over. No contest. Now, just pulling it back to us in a moment, um, I think sometimes you might be feeling, and it's certainly the case, Almost every Christian conference I go on nowadays really is mentioning how much the climate has changed for churches. We are really under the pump as churches and Christians in society. If you haven't felt it, you will feel it. Anti-Christian sentiment is getting angrier than it's probably ever been in a place like Australia. And you got, I mean, it's been going for a little while now, but you have especially atheists, really smart, you know, 
um, PhD having book writing atheists, guys like have you heard of Richard Dawkins, the professor? Um, they're not just smart, but they're vocal and they write books and they're in interviews and they just go at Christians. And sometimes you feel really defeated, right? If you've ever chatted to a person who's not yet a follower of Jesus and, and they're spouting Richard Dawkins and you're like, what have I got? And you can get really scared. But I want you to know that this psalm gives you a different perspective. You see, one day Richard Dawkins will face the God he doesn't believe in. And guess what? God isn't threatened by the Dawkinses or those campaigning against churches and religious freedom. It's the God who created Dawkins, the God who created everything, the God who gave Dawkins his brain and is a little bit smarter than, way smarter than Richard Dawkins. And, and anyone who shakes their fists at God will seem so very small when they face His majesty. Their arguments will seem laughable. Their attempts at rebellion will be a joke. You need to see that perspective. If you're a Christian and for whatever reason you feel like you're under the pump, Psalm 2 gives you a different perspective when you see it from heaven. Now, I want to say though, this is not to say that you don't question, you don't ask, you don't seek proof, you don't use your brain, not at all. We encourage you to do that at SWEC. That's why we have Fresh. That's why we have Next Steps. That's why we want you to ask questions. But you see, there is a difference between those who do it with an axe to grind against the church and Christians, like Dawkins, and those of you who've come to Fresh and those of friends who've come, and really, over five weeks, genuinely, sincerely, open-mindedly have sought reasons to believe. Ask hard questions but in a really, really helpful way. So I want to encourage you to do that. At the same time, don't be threatened by the Dawkinses. And because, let's come back to the psalm, because of what God has decreed from heaven about earth, there's really then only one response that's appropriate. And this is how the psalm closes, right? Look at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son or He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now in the ancient world, to kiss is to, a king or ruler is to pay homage, to submit yourself under His rule. And so here, remember I said there were two locations and four characters. We've seen three characters. Here, the fourth character pops up a little bit harder to find. But the fourth character is in the last verse. The fourth character is all those who take refuge in the sun. The fourth character are those who are reading this psalm and paying heed to the message of this psalm. So it's not just kings. It's also you. It's also me. It's readers and hearers of this psalm. We're the fourth character. You see what it's saying? We can also find the way of blessing and happiness by being wise, by submitting ourselves also under God's rule, under God's chosen ruler. Now, the reason why we read Psalm 1 in addition to Psalm 2 is actually you'll see they're linked. Did you notice that even though they're about vastly different things on the surface, there are some really key themes in Psalm 1 that goes into Psalm 2. Firstly, the idea of blessing, right? Psalm 1 begins with blessed. Psalm 2 ends with blessed. And also the idea of wisdom. Psalm 1 doesn't use the word wisdom, but it really is about wisdom, about what is the right way of living as opposed to the bad way. So Psalm 1, blessed is the one who walks in God's ways. 
Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed is the one who is wise and takes refuge in God's Son, the Messiah. And Psalm 1 introduces us to those who do the opposite, the wicked. And because they're wicked, they won't stand on the day of judgment. But Psalm 2 actually shows us an example of the wicked, don't they? The wicked are those who rebel against God's rule. The nations and their rulers, they're the wicked and they will be destroyed. And so you want to take 1 and 2 together, don't you? The message of Psalms 1 and 2 together is, hey, you readers, you fourth character people, don't be like the wicked. Don't be like those rebellious kings and their rulers. Walk wisely. Walk in God's ways. Take refuge in God's Son. Submit to His rule. And then you'll find blessing. The idea of being blessed is sort of the idea of being prosperous, having the good life, being happy. Right? If you do that, you will be blessed. Now, all good so far? Seems pretty straightforward. But wait, there is more. So let's go to point two. Now, before digital music and uh, streaming services like Apple Music and Spotify, even before CDs, really, what you used to do is you buy entire albums. And before, again, before CDs and you couldn't like random play, you had to actually listen to music in order of the albums. So those of you who are a little bit older, like me and older, you remember that the and any time you bought a musical album, the order of the songs in the album was actually important. Again, you couldn't just skip tracks. You had to actually go through it from beginning to end. And then if you're like, again, belong in my era or older, you'll remember that these things, they're called cassette tapes. And when I was a teenager, what we would do is we would make mixtapes for our friends. All right? So you'd, it was actually illegal because we're essentially pirating music. But anyway, you would um, make mixtapes. So maybe... It was for someone you liked. You would give them a mixtape of the songs you chose, all the good love songs. Now, when you did that, you had to think about the order of the songs, yeah? So you, you would start with a song like, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. And you would end with a song like, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. But you wouldn't start with, I Will Always Love You. It's just too much too strong. And end with, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Do, do you see what I mean? All right, sorry, these are old songs. I'm sorry. Um, the order mattered. Now, I want to suggest to you that the Psalms, 150 songs, is a collection with an order. That they actually thought about the order the songs are in. The final form, the final collection, was probably finished around four, five, 400 years before Jesus, after the nation had gone into exile to Babylon, but then had returned and rebuilt the temple after they'd been humiliated and then brought back, right? After their own line of kings, the kings of David, had been deposed and they no longer had their own king. After all that, they collected these 150 psalms. A lot of these psalms probably existed hundreds of years before, but the final collection wasn't until then. And the order and arrangement, like a good mixtape, was very important. And it told a story. And the summary is that we've got a collection, if you read through the book, so what I'm trying to do now is give you an insight, an introduction to the whole collection. You've got the Psalms given to us in five books, you'll see on the overhead. And the whole collection has an introduction with two Psalms and a conclusion with five Psalms. 
And Psalms 1 and 2, and this is why we're opening with Psalm 2 as well as looking at Psalm 1, it's actually an introduction that gives you an expectation, like a good introduction to a book, like a good preface. It'll give you a, a sort of an idea about what the whole collection is about. And so if we read 1 and 2, like we look, just looked at, as an introduction to the whole 150 Psalms, then what, what can we conclude? Well, it means that the whole collection is going to be about what the way of blessing is, isn't it? about what it's like for those who trust God. The whole collection of Psalms is going to be for those who want to take refuge in God. But it's also going to be about God's rule through His appointed King, the Messiah, the Son of David, or David Himself, and how God, through this King, will rule and reign over the nations. Right? You take what Psalms 1 and 2 in His introduction, those are the things you expect and those are the things you will find as you read the Psalms. And then the whole collection, as I said, finishes with five concluding Psalms, 146 to 150. And they all are praise Psalms. Hallelujah is the Hebrew word, praise the Lord. They're all hallelujah Psalms. Because the collection is going to end with all of those things set up in Psalms 1 and 2 having been achieved. Right? God's rule through His Messiah achieved. Those who take refuge in Him blessed achieved those who walk wisely and trust in god blessed achieved and so at the end of it you're going to get praise that's the intro that's the conclusion but what actually happens between the intro and the conclusion if you have your bibles just have a look at psalm 3 because the very first psalm after the introduction you're going to see david Psalm 3 opens with a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Just to hint, when you read psalms, those bits in italics, they're actually part of the original psalm. In the original language, Hebrew, they would usually be verse 1. All right? So we meet David almost immediately in Psalm 3, and it's the same with Psalm 4. It's the same with 5, 6, 7, 8. All right? And what you see, though, is when you meet David, the Lord's Messiah, the Anointed One, just glance over Psalm 3. Does he sound like the son who speaks in Psalm 2? No. Look at him. He's in distress. He's fled from his enemies. His own son, Absalom, has turned against him. That's in 2 Samuel, by the way. It's not a song of praise. He's not saying hallelujah. He's actually lamenting. To lament means to cry, to grieve. He takes refuge in the Lord, but he's experiencing pain. He's the Messiah. He's God's son, but he's not ruling the kings of the earth. In fact, all those Psalms are often about how they're rebelling against him and succeeding, it seems like. And so you'll see, as we actually move through the Psalms, especially in books 1 and 2, you'll get a collection of many, 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 predominantly Psalms of David, the historical Messiah, and they're mostly laments. They're mostly him crying out in pain, and that's books 1 and 2. And then you hit book 3, and David almost completely disappears from view. We don't get many songs of David in book 3. They become songs of the people of God, but the situation gets worse, not better. 
So I want you to have a look at the end of the last book of book 3, Psalm 89. Look, I've just put out some verses there. And look what it says. It says, You have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one, your Messiah. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Skipping ahead a little bit, 49. Lord, where is your former great love in which you faithfully swore to David? As we get into book three of the Psalms, the whole nation is lamenting, not just historical David, the whole nation, because they are in exile. They're in a place like Babylon, far away from the temple, far away from the land. Their nation is in tatters. Their kings are deposed. Their land has been overtaken. And so the promises of God that set up so clearly in places like Psalm 2 to David, it seems impossibly distant. And that way of blessing that Psalm 1 talks about, how the wicked will be destroyed, the rebellious will be conquered, God's Son and the righteous will rule, all of that. You get to the end of book 3 and you're thinking, where is that, God? Where are those promises? Because it doesn't seem to be the case while we're in exile. So that ends book 3. The people are suffering. But then in book 4, a solution to the problem begins to be built up. Book 4 opens with a psalm, Psalm 90, if you quick flip to it. And it says, this is a song of Moses or a prayer of Moses. And the theme of book 4 is captured in Psalm 90, the first psalm. We don't have time to read through it. But really the message of book 4 is this. If there is going to be hope, then we've got to go back to the very beginning. Right? Hope is not going to be in the historical kings. With David and Solomon, the glory days, all of that has come and gone now they're in exile. The historical kingdom of Israel, well, that was good for a little bit of time, but it's now fallen and in, in shatters. The hope is God's promises that go all the way back to the beginning, which is the Exodus. When God first brings them out of Egypt and makes them his own people, that's why Moses is there in book three, uh, book four. And so God's message in book four is for there to be hope, there's going to be a new rescue, a new Exodus. And book 4 will end with Psalm 106, where people are crying out for God to save them and gather them from the nations so that they might give thanks to His holy name and glory in His praise. And as you can probably anticipate, the final book of collections, book 5, 107 to 145, shows how God will do that. And how will He do it? A little bit surprisingly, because we thought after book 2, that David was well and truly gone. But then David makes another appearance in book 5. You get songs of David again. And David is now not just the historical David, but I like to call it David Plus. Right? He's much bigger, much better than the historical David. He is a perfect David, a Messiah in the model of Psalm 2. And so you get Psalm 110 in book 5, which, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament book in the entire New Testament. This book. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. What does that sound like, huh? Sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? That's in book 5. And so book 5, the collection ends with God restoring his people 
gathering them from exile. And it looks forward to God ruling and reigning through His Son, the Messiah. And so while, remember, the Psalms are mostly lament Psalms at the beginning, books 1, 2, and 3, by books 4 and 5, it will turn to praise. And the last five Psalms will have the whole creation, everything that has breath in it, says 150, saying hallelujah. That was a really quick summary of 150 Psalms. But I want you to know that there is an order to it. There is a story to it. And so when you come to the New Testament, all of that becomes really exciting. Because you come to the New Testament, you see how all of this gets fulfilled. Jesus, after he's risen from the dead in Luke chapter 24, we won't look it up, and he's telling his disciples, explaining why it is that he's risen from the dead and what that means. He actually says that the Psalms themselves spoke about what was happening to him, that he as Messiah would suffer and then enter into glory. Now we've seen that, right? What is the collection of Psalms about? It's about the suffering of the Messiah and then entering into his glory. And Jesus saw that that whole collection was prophesying about him. And if you want to get even more specific, at his baptism, what was the voice of heaven saying? You are my son. Where's that from? Psalm 2. With his resurrection in Acts 13, again, they quote Psalm 2. As he's risen from the dead, it proves that he is the son and God is his father. See, Jesus is the ruling, reigning, perfect son of God, Messiah, that we've seen in Psalm 2. Because of Jesus, God's promises are fulfilled. The exile ends. The new exodus can happen. And lament can turn into praise. So the summary application. Let's come back to Psalm 2. The summary application of Psalm 2 is actually a summary of all of the Psalms. And that's why Psalm 2 is a nice little window into the whole collection. If you want me to put it in one sentence, this is how I would put it. What does Psalm 2 mean for us in one sentence? Well, here it is. The way of wisdom and blessing is to submit to Jesus the King and take refuge in what He's done for us. Right? The way of wisdom and blessing is to submit to Jesus the King and take refuge in what He's done for us. Because you see, the kings of the earth who rebel against the Lord in Psalm 2 is actually a picture not just of kings back then, but of all humanity today. Not just the Richard Dawkinses and the vocal atheists who defy God. Actually, let's admit it, it's a picture of you and me without God. We just tend to do it more politely. I mean, you think about it. We live in God's world. We breathe the air He provides. We enjoy the good things He gives us. But we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love one another, our neighbors, as we love ourselves. See, the very things that God rightly requires of us as His creatures, living His world, enjoying His good gifts, we fail at that. And we fail every single day, don't we? Love God with all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't do that. We would rather love created things than the Creator. We'd rather live selfishly rather than love our neighbors. 
And that is just a more polite way, from God's perspective at least, a polite way for us to also declare our independence. We also want autonomy, self-rule. But Psalm 2 shows us that God has set a day when that kind of rebellion will be judged. And he has appointed his son, and we know that son is King Jesus, the son of David, the descendant of David. Jesus is going to be the one who judges. And the only right response is that we all turn to Jesus, submit to his rule before it's too late. But because Jesus, our King, died for us, he takes on the punishment for our rebellion on the cross in our place, he also therefore can offer himself as a refuge for us. And so you need to know here, especially if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that no matter what you've done, no matter what way you've rebelled, whether it's politely and quietly like most Australians or actively and vocally like the Richard Dawkins, it doesn't matter. If you have Jesus as your king, you can find refuge and shelter in him because he died for you and rose again. Your sins can be forgiven today. You can have eternal life today and have the way of blessing if you find refuge in Him. That's good news, isn't it? But you know what? Jesus is a refuge in more ways than that, of course. Remember, the movement of the Psalms is from lament to praise. Until Jesus comes back, we will find ourselves echoing the pain of so many of these Psalms. Those who submit to Jesus and take refuge in Him will still find ourselves, what? Suffering instead of victorious. Lamenting instead of praising. And maybe that is your experience right now. Maybe that's been the past week for you. Maybe that's been the past months, years for you. That actually, it's been more about laments. You have had a picture of what life would be like, the ideal, but the reality is so far from that, that your expectation versus what you're facing now, even as a follower of Jesus, is so far apart that you cry out from the depths of your being, why? A week and a half ago, Karen and I went to the funeral of a 77-day-old baby. She's the daughter of Andrew, our Andrew's godparents, close friends. Their baby lived 77 days, but even before Evie was born, they knew that she would not probably live beyond her first year. She, you see, she had a genetic defect where only 50% get born alive and only 10% live past the age of one. And so Thursday, t- two weeks ago, they buried her. That's the reality of life for so many of God's people. And some of you have been through that. You've lost babies too. Or other tragedies where it's just, what is going on? Now, I want to tell you that though they are still grieving heavily, though the tears are still flowing, what they did through the time of Evie's well, while she was still in mummy's tummy, but particularly after she was born in and out of hospital for more than half of those 77 days, they would read and reread 
to each other and to Evie, guess what? Part of the Bible, the Psalms. And even after the funeral, the passage of Scripture they posted up was Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You see, this is why the Psalms are so good. Because it can give voice to your laments. It can put words to those cries and the sadness and the pain that you feel. So let me just say, as an introduction to the Psalms, use them. Use the Psalms. Psalm 79, how long, O Lord? Use those words. Psalm 88, I am overwhelmed with troubles. Turn your ear to my cry. Psalm 22, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. God provides the Psalms for your laments. But here's the thing, even as you lament and cry, also hope. Take refuge in the Son, in Jesus. Because Jesus underwent the ultimate lament and suffering so that you and I would never have to. The last psalm I just quoted, my God, I cry out by day, you do not answer. Psalm 22, there's a more famous line of Psalm 22 you might be familiar with. It goes like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And guess who cries out those lines of lament? And when did he cry out those lines of lament? You might know it. It was on the cross as he hung there for our sins. You see, the Son, Jesus, was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. And so when you take refuge in Him and you continue to trust in Him as your King, He will in time take you from lament to praise. And it may not be right now, but here's the thing. Because of Jesus, even through the valleys as you lament, He promises to be your shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Your refuge, Psalm 2. Your rock, your redeemer. It's too many Psalms that talk about that image. And he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And he promises that one day when he returns and he inherits and rules over the nations and all of creation is made new, he promises that your tears of lament will turn into resounding hallelujahs of praise. And that, you can bank your life on if you take refuge in Him. Let's pray.